Season 3, Episode 4 of the Birding Life Podcast. My name is Adam, and I'm your host on the podcast where we discover birds and the people that pursue them. This episode features two guides, a birder and a bird photographer, that were lucky enough to go on the recent Flock to Marion cruise. They share about their experiences on the cruise, funny moments, behind-the-scenes stories from the guides, and tips to separate wandering from Tristan Albatross. Part of the purpose of the cruise was to raise awareness and funds for the Mouse Free Marion project. We encourage our listeners to please support the project by sponsoring one or more hectares of land on Marion Island. This will help them to rid the island of mice and restore it towards its once pristine beauty. To find out more, please visit their website www.mousefreemarion.org. There is a link in the notes to the show. Be sure to visit the Birding Life's online store. We sell books, merchandise, accommodation, and all the best optics for birding. We aim to offer the best titles at the best prices, along with fantastic service. There's a link to the shop in the notes of the show. So, without further ado, let's get into today's episode. The Birding Life is proud to be associated with Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes, as well as the Bird Lesser Bird Logging app. Spot, plot, play a part. Download and install the app to play your part in social conservation. The Birding Life is a lot more than just a podcast. It's a multi-platform resource to connect birders with each other, amazing locations, the best resources, and obviously where to find amazing birds. Check out our website at www.thebirdinglife.com, our YouTube channel, our various social media platforms, as well as the other podcasts we host. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing and leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts to help others find the show. So let us get into this week's episode of the Birding Life Podcast. Okay, guys, we had a bit of a break last week, but it's good to be back with the Birding Life Podcast. We've got a really cool panel today. We've got myself, obviously, Garrett Skeed. We've got Mark Buckham, Yandre Fester, and Julian Parsons. It's so great to have all of you on the show tonight. And we're going to be talking all about the Flock to Marion Cruise. So just to start off, can we ask, ask you all just to give a short introduction as to who you are? Yeah, Adam, thanks very much for having all of us. And it's great to be amongst some fellow flockers. I think we've all come back with uh, a bit of a buzz. Um, so I'm Mike Buckham. I'm the oldest person in this panel by a multiple of two, I think. Um, so very pleased to be here. Basically just a, a fanatical birder and photographer. Um, been birding since I was six or seven years old, live in Cape Town, and I've been lucky enough to go on plenty of pelagic trips. So I know quite a bit about seabirds, but I um, suffer terribly from seasickness and I, I keep pushing through. Uh, fortunately, the, the ship had a very stable ballast and I was able to um, stay upright for the whole duration. But yeah, it was a, it was a great trip and a, a real experience to add to to what has been a lifetime of, of great birding. So thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the chat. Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Garrett Skeed. I am also based in Cape Town. So hi from the Cape Town City Bowl. And I'm also a passionate birder, of course, very keen on seabird watching, uh, which I do fairly often from the rocks off Clifton, where I get to see birds at about two or three kilometers away as tiny little specks. So it was pretty cool to get on the flock to Marion and have the opportunity to see those birds close up 
um, for about for for a week long sort of birding extravaganza, which was really fantastic. I also was privileged to be asked to guide on the flock, so that was a fantastic experience as well. And um, yeah, basically looking forward to the chat and sorry that sorry that the flock is over actually. Cool. How's it, everyone? Yeah. So Julian Parsons here. Yeah, I grew up birding from a young age. Uh, didn't didn't do much of it during high school and all that, but then got into the safari guiding industry. And yeah, spent ten years running around Southern Africa, working in the bush. Worked mostly in KZN up in Zambia for a while, and then yeah, Kalahari, which was absolutely incredible. I love the. Yeah, the arid western regions. But yeah, before the flock, I was was quite nervous because didn't have much uh, pelagic guiding experience. So tried as hard as I could to to pre- prepare myself um, and study as hard as I could. But yeah, as you know, if you haven't seen these birds in the field and different lighting, different behaviours, yeah, it can be quite daunting. But yeah, it was absolute privilege to be asked to be one of the guides in the flock, and it was an experience of a lifetime. Thank you, Adam, and thank you so much for hosting us. I'm Yandere Verstar. I'm a 17-year-old bird watcher and bird photographer. Um, I'm based in Gauteng, Pretoria. And then I've basically been interest, interested in birds since the day I was born. But I only started seriously birding in 2017. And the way I used to ID birds was, was with a tiny Canon camera that I just used to get like shots and ID features to just get to ID the bird. And then after the years, I started investing more in camera equipment and photography gear to actually capture the bird not just to get an idea on it but to capture the bird and its behavior so yeah i'm also a ringer so some saturdays at the beginning of the month we go out into a reserve or a park to basically ring birds which is also a very helpful way to study the birds and get useful tips and information on how to id them as much as Flock was fantastic, one of the things that I really thought was amazing was the weekend in Cape Town before. I mean, we went all around. Went with Garrett, was our amazing guide for the weekend. Took us, went to Royals, went to Strandfontein, West Coast National Park, went to all the spots on the Cape. And what I loved is everywhere you went, there were birders from around the country. You got to meet birders that I'd met on Facebook before and birders that I had um, had opportunity to, you know, chat with over social media, but all of a sudden you had all these birders from all around the world all together in one place. And it was absolutely fantastic. And I think that was one of the highlights of the Flock to Marion experience for me. So I don't know if you guys want to talk about that weekend before. Okay. Well, Adam, it was a real, it was a real pleasure hosting you for the weekend before you and Zach. And yeah, it was, I always love showing people my home patch. The weather in Cape Town that weekend did not make it easy for us. It was the hottest. I have ever experienced Cape Town when it was 32 degrees at eight and nine o'clock at night. So it wasn't an easy task to find all of your targets. I think we managed to get you about 25 lifers in the end. So that was great. And yeah, we had quite a nice typical Cape Town and West Coast experience. It was nice to also finally meet Jandre at the, at the Gilbeck Hyde, which is quite a famous spot in Cape Town during circles. So that was cool. You know, it's hot when Zach is this crazy birder. If you know him, he will like, he will twitch a fly that's landed in flipping Magnoni. He's that kind of oak. And you know, it's hot when, when you make a suggestion that we're going to spend some time at lunch out of the heat and he has no arguments. That's when you know it's flipping hot. I think the best experience I had the weekend was we were up we're in West Coast National Park. We stopped at that lookout point and there was a southern black coron. 
And we, we came out, we saw this bird walking up to us and was like, okay, cool. We'll get some photos. And it, this bird just kept walking towards us. I think it got within two meters of us. It was like this absolutely, absolutely special experience. It blew my mind. Uh, that was probably my highlight of the whole weekend. Yeah, that indiv- individual is a real Hollywood star. It's, yeah, love showing itself. Just on a side note, you know, one thing is, is one guy who has never listened to is Jonathan Rousseau. So we were on the bottom at Roy and There's these like rock jumpers on the top of the mountain. And I'm like, I'm quite happy. I look at them. We look at them through the scope. I'm quite happy to see them. And he's like, no, no, you can't look at these birds from the bottom. Garrett had wisdom. Garrett says, I'm just going to stay at the bottom. We walk up the mountain. I nearly died. And like, you know, you try to put this brave face on and you try to look like you've got it all together, but you're dying inside. And I got up, like I got up and I just, I just was happy to see these birds from like, I don't know. And I just got back down again. It was the worst experience. I thought I was actually going to die. <laughs> yeah, I know. We, we actually had a really cool um, pre-flock tour. We did the Western Cape up into the Northern Cape to Brunflow. And I must say, the Western Cape birding was very difficult being the time of year. Birds aren't breeding. They're not responding. Um, they're not calling much. And also weather conditions weren't on our side. But um, getting up to Brunflow, which is up in the Northern Cape, northeast of Calfinia, it was absolutely spectacular. I mean, the amount of different lark species we saw, there were hundreds of sclater's larks, black-eared sparrow larks, grayback sparrow larks. Uh, we had great views of red larks. Um, yeah, it was just, yeah, just a perfect, perfect, um, season up there with all the mountain rain they've had. Even had good, good numbers of emir falcons as well as lesser kestrels, which is a bit out of range for them. But, you know, those arid regions, as soon as they have good rains, it's just, uh, everything just explodes, which is, yeah, it was incredible. Yeah. Adam, I, I had the pleasure of being asked by, by Andrew. I think Andrew de Block was, running around like a bit of a lunatic that last uh, week. Um, and he asked um, myself and my good mate, Callan Cohen, to assist with the, the BirdLife uh, community guides. So we, it's, it's always nice uh, taking people out um, into places that you're very familiar with and where potential lifers are around every corner. And it was even better to be able to return the favor because I've, I've used a lot of those community guides to show me lifers in places like Zululand and Polokwane and Mahubus Kloof. So um, taking them out, we, we, we collected them at um, their hotel in near the waterfront six o'clock on, on Sunday morning. It was already about 28 degrees. Um, we took them to Cecilia Forest, which is a little spot that I know for Cape Siskin, um, which can be a, a tricky bird if you don't know where to look. And then we went into Kirstenbosch and we had you know, the usual sugar birds and orange-breasted sunbird and uh, lots of nice Cape endemics. Um, and then we, we had to go to Strunfontein, which which is a, an amazing, it's it's looking amazing at the moment, actually. So um, I hope all the Gautis are on standby to get on an airplane because I'm sure something's going to turn up, um, although everyone's heading to Mossel Bay at the moment. Um, but yeah, it was it was a great opportunity to, to take take people who, who just would never normally normally have an opportunity to come into Cape Town and see some of the, the Cape endemics. So um, yeah, that was a, a, a real highlight for me of the whole flock um, episode. Let's dig into the, the, the flock to Marion Cruise. It was an absolutely amazing, amazing week. I didn't go on the previous flock. This was my first flock, so I had no idea what to expect. And I know personally, I was absolutely, absolutely blown away. So let's just firstly, let's jump into the the preparation process. And you know, I'm really. Let me just start with Yandre. I mean, Yandre, you've you said when you started, you've never done a pelagic um, in your life before, and you from Pretoria, 
So how did you prepare for the flock? How did you get yourself ready? I know you know, you didn't guide on the on the cruise, but you did a fantastic job. How did you prepare yourself for the birds you would see? I mean, I just remember when we saw those flocks of primes coming past. I mean, there's I don't know what the heck I was looking at, but you got some great photos. And yeah, you know, how did you prepare yourself? So the way I prepared for flock was to ask one of my friends, Jean, to send me some photos of pelagic species that he took. And then I need to try and ID them. And then I also ask him for like tips and tricks on how to ID this and what to look out for in this species. And in person, I ask him like, for example, but how big is a shy albatross? Um, how big is a storm petrel? How big is a petrel? And then basically from there, I started to get more of a basic idea of how big they are in the field. Um, and then also Fancy Peacock's new bird app, Five Inch, was an absolute lifesaver. Um, I remember sitting in class, just going through the app, trying to study the birds, to read about them, and to just get as much information in my head as possible. And then Julian and Garrett, you both guided on the, the, the cruise. How did you guys prepare yourselves for what we were going to see? <laughs> YouTube videos. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I mean, among other work, I didn't have a huge amount of time to prep. So I did try and use field guides and read up as much as I could. But you know what, it's unfortunately, you know, unless you're actually getting somebody explaining it to you, it's better. So I came across some better birding YouTube videos and yeah, I just started cracking away that way. And I can tell you now, it's it's not as good as first-hand experience. I mean, once you see those birds for the first time, and if you've got a bit of birding experience, you pick up their, their behaviors, their flight patterns, their shapes, their sizes. Uh, you do pick it up quite quickly. Um, yeah. Yeah, I also I, I brushed up with some of the webinars. The BirdLife South Africa produced four, or, yeah, four pretty good webinars, I thought. So those were excellent. And also Mike and Dave, produced some excellent pelagic webinars with Tom Rollinson about on the Better Birding YouTube channel. So I watched a couple of those. So yeah, just just nice to get to brush up on a few things. And of course, no matter how many pelagics I've done around from Cape Town and Durban, it was a very new experience for me to see diving petrels and to see those numbers of prions and penguins porpoising through the water at, in, at light speeds. So it was quite a it was quite an interesting new experience. And as as Julian says, you can only really get that from first-hand experience in the field, I'd say. And then, Mike, you were involved in the Better Birding webinars. You know, how did you find, how did that help you with your preparation process beforehand? Or is it a lot more difficult when you see these birds, I, I don't say in person, but you see them, you know, at sea? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, if you recall the Better Birding webinars, I certainly wasn't the expert. Dom was our expert, and he's got um, a huge amount of experience. And and I think it, it goes to exactly what uh, Julian is saying. If, if you haven't actually seen the birds, um, in the flesh, um, it's, it's not something you can replicate with webinars. So Dom has spent more time at sea than, than most people we know. So if you stood near Dom, you would have realized how quick he was to pick up, um, unusual stuff. So I think people underestimated, um, how difficult, um, separating certain species are. Um, I think we're still working through quite a lot of, um, uncertainty around, um, families like the Prions. Um, we've, we've got anywhere between, um, sort of three and six different prime species that potentially could land up on the list. And, and given how many cameras were on board and how many photographs were taken, it just shows that it really isn't a, a perfect science. So I, I had no um, expectations of being particularly good, particularly when going into areas that we hadn't been before. Selvin's prime was a new bird for me. 
um, and remarkably similar to to Antarctic primes. So um, I think um, some of the birds are easy. I think all the wanderers we had at the back of the ship were, were a delight to see them in all different plumages. But those small birds, things like the greyback storm petrel, um, you know, to pick those up and then and learn that little nugget of information that you know they found feeding on those little kelp patches. And once you knew that, um, it it was it was relatively easy. And that's not something that any of us, I think, would have known. Um, there might have been a handful of people who knew that. So it just goes to show how important um, personal experience and being out at sea and seeing those birds um, where, where they live rather than reading it up in a book or watching it on a webinar. Yeah, and then Garrett, you were you were you gave me a little bit of a, a hint before, and you were telling me about you were talking earlier. Mark was speaking about Dom Rollinson, and I remember you were telling me all about what a fantastic bird he was. And the first morning, I went on deck seven, and the way I grew as a seabird is I went and I stood next to Dom Rollinson, and every single bird I saw, I said, I didn't just he'd, he'd point the bird out, and I'd say, Dom, why is it that bird? And then I took I take a photo of the back of my camera, and I'd actually write the notes. Whatever he said to me, I'd write little notes on there, and I remember. You just said to me what a good bird a dom is, and it just that was a huge help because what I find a bit, you know, people were, you know, you'd have these soft plumage petrels flying past in, in their hundreds, and you know, on on day six, people were still saying, "Oh, what bird's that? What bird's that?" And I think, you know, if you just spent time on deck and you just took note of what they were and asked the right questions, you would have been able to point identify some of those some of those birds. You might have got a few wrong, but you would have been able to probably more confidently identify them as the cruise went on. Yeah, I definitely believe that people learned as they went. Um, that was probably true of many of the guides as well, because we saw some species that we weren't familiar with. Um, and, and as you mentioned about Dom, that's 100% true. Dom is a very humble guy. Um, when you meet him, you wouldn't think that he's one of the top birders in the country, but he's very patient, very humble, and an excellent teacher. So it was definitely, it was definitely a good call to go and stand near him on the first day. Yeah, no, speaking of having people standing by your side, um, I was actually very fortunate to have Dan Dankwitz on the first few days. Um, he would always find me uh, wherever I was guiding and he would come stand by my side to to help me out, um, which yeah, I really, really appreciated. That was, yeah, not nice to have the Rock Jumper colleagues with you. <laughs> let, me, let me ask a question. Did any of you have to guide when Peter Harrison was standing there? I think that must have been one of the most freaky things out. I mean, this is the world's top seabird, seabird expert and you're like, I would have been so scared to point anything out. Did any of you guard with Peter Harrison standing right next to you there? Yep. <laughs> it was nerve-wracking. <laughs> I, I actually didn't. Maybe he actively avoided my guarding station. I'm not sure. But but what I, what I did have to do once is I had to relieve Pete Ryan as an impromptu thing because he had to rush off. So I had to walk up to a big group of people and everyone was standing on deck. And I tapped Pete Ryan on the shoulder and said, sorry, Andrew wants you in the meeting. and Basically, the entire crowd around me sort of heaved a sort of collective sigh of disappointment, like, oh, no, we've lost Pete Ryan. So I had to sort of stand in and desperately try and fill that gap. But, uh, yeah, it was it was quite stressful. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how we did, but it was quite interesting. Maybe just to, to carry on the Pete Ryan theme. I mean, I've known Pete for a long time, and, and uh, I, I do consider him to be the best seabirder that I know. Um, and on the day that Tristan was uh, first sighted off the stern, um, I was in my room, which uh, I shouldn't mention because I, I did get a, a lot of abuse for taking an afternoon nap every now and again. Um, and Garrett, fortunately, um, was considerate and he sent me a, a quick uh, photo from Gabriel Jamie's uh, camera and said um, there's a Tristan candidate at the stern. So it was about four o'clock, rushed to the stern 
um, worked my way through a, a pile of people, um, then walked down one of those um, sort of uh, side stairwells on, on, the, on the port side um, at the stern and found a bit of space and we stood and waited. I was with my mate Dave Winter and one or two other people and eventually the Tristan Albatross candidate sort of wafted into view behind the, the ship and uh, took a whole bunch of photos and about 45 minutes later we were all still debating is this good or is this not good? And uh, Pete happened to walk through the door at the back of the little stairwell and he looked a bit blurry-eyed and uh, we said to him, Pete, you've come at exactly the right time. You know, what, what do you think of the bird? And he said, what are you talking about? And um, we said to him, the Tristan Albatross. He said, I have no idea what you're talking about. I've been sleeping. So um was uh, thrust a whole bunch of cameras um, under his nose and he had to work his way. I've, I've actually, I took a video. We, we called Pete, Pete the Crusher Ryan because uh, you could have a crystal clear photo of a tropical shearwater and he still would... And give you a bit of a hard time whether it was or wasn't. So he looked at Dave's camera and after about 30 seconds, he said, no, no, that looks good. So we actually said to him, Pete, whatever you do, don't go upstairs because you're going to get swamped by hundreds of people with the backs of their cameras. So we sent Vanessa upstairs to make the announcement. And that was when, when it was called as, as being a, a very good candidate for Tristan. So yeah, Pete doesn't like the limelight so much, but he's an outstanding bird. And I, I must say, I find him to be. Uh, one of the good guys to stand next to, and, and Garrett, I, I do, I do sympathise that you had to stand in his shoes, but you did a great job as well. So let's chat about expectation versus reality. I didn't know what to expect. I'd never been on a flock to Marion cruise before, and obviously, those of you who have been on a flock to Marion cruise, you would kind of have an expectation about what to expect or what not to expect. So, yeah, let's just chat through. You know, what did you expect before the the cruise and did the did the cruise meet your expectations, or did it even surpass your expectations? Let's maybe start with you, Mark. Yeah, I mean, I was very fortunate to to be on Flock Twenty Seventeen, I think it was, and and we had that um, absolutely ridiculous first morning with grey petrol, light mantle albatross, sooty albatross, white headed petrol, and so I, I think um, a lot of people who were on that particular trip were were pretty excited about what the prospects were, even in subregion waters. I think I've done enough uh, pelagics to know that it, it isn't always like that, particularly when you get away from the trawling grounds. So um, I, I wasn't um, particularly disappointed when quite a lot of the, the steaming to Marion was, was relatively quiet. I, I have to say, though, the day at Marion for me was, was well beyond um, any expectations that I'd had. I couldn't have imagined having so many wandering albatrosses in view at the same time and, and then having sooties and light mantles and gray-headed albatrosses flying in between them. Um, I think also thinking about penguins, I, I, I didn't realize that we would see penguins as well as we did. Um, I think you had to be quite quick, particularly if you wanted a photo, but having penguins coming up to the boat um, and, and then porpoising, um, that was something I, I had no expectation of. Um, I, I also just couldn't believe how good the birding was from four in the morning till sort of seven o'clock at night. Dave and I were getting ready to go for dinner and just um, sitting at our, our balcony. And we watched the blue petrel um, for for half an hour um, flying outside our room. And uh, I have the photographic proof of that, if, if no one believes me. But it was quite amazing for, for I think it was 16, 17 hours of that day um, to have um, such incredible birding. And I, I rate it as, as one of the best, if not the best, day of birding I can ever remember. So for me, I, I was well exceeded. I, I think a lot of people were disappointed with the tropical waters on the way back. But I fully expected that, and, and so I used it to catch up on a little bit of uh, sleep in the afternoons. 
Yeah, so I went into it with absolutely no expectations. I knew it was going to be a trip of a lifetime, which it ended up being. And yeah, just to mirror what Mike said, that day around Marion was it was absolutely mind blowing. I I remember waking up in the morning, yeah, a little bit under the weather. Had a few glasses of wine the night before, so <laughs> woke up a bit late. So I wasn't on early shift. And when I got up and I looked out the window and I just saw these monsters of the ocean just gliding past the window, it was just like I just felt this overwhelming emotion. And yeah, I've never got dressed so quickly in my life. And I just ran to the deck and yeah, just to see those wandering albatross and the sooty, sooty types, light mantles. Oh, it was just, yeah, it was mind blowing. It was, yeah, it was way more than what I was expecting. Yeah. Certainly the Marion day was fantastic, as everybody said. Um, I don't think that I was disappointed by the other days. I was expecting that the seabirding was going to be fairly slow on some of the days when we were just steaming down to Marion and back. So I was actually pleasantly surprised by the by the bird activity. I thought there were excellent numbers of birds. I don't think there were any particularly long periods where there was nothing to keep you entertained. So, yeah, I think it definitely met all of my expectations in that regard. Of course, it must be said that we had a lot of uncertainty going into the flock as to whether or not we were going to get close enough to the islands, etc. And there was a little bit of uncertainty about whether we were going to be able to go around the islands. And then that was obviously cancelled because of the weather front that came in. But I don't think that that really had a long-term impact on the success of the block. I don't think that, I don't think anybody's birding was compromised and everybody has such fantastic memories. And yeah, so it by far exceeded expectations, even with the initial disappointment of knowing that we weren't going to be able to get very close to Marion Island itself. What was really amazing for me, and I kind of echo what everyone said, you know, it was really like blew my mind. I mean, there was, I mean, Garrett, when we were talking before, you spoke about the fact that you expected those times where there'd be no birds for a long time and there were birds almost all the time except for those those last two last two days on the way back but there was that one morning I remember standing outside it was early in the morning it was bitterly cold and the wind was howling and looking looking out there were whales going past there were all these wandering albatrosses flying and I'm not one of these emotional people I'm really not one of these people but I almost had like this this tear in my heart was like and I thought this is like absolutely absolutely insane and I think it's you know there's those moments in your your birding that define you as a birder there's those moments that you just wish you could you know everyone who's not a birder you could you could take and allow them to experience that because if they could experience that they would understand why we why we are so nuts about birds and it was absolutely absolutely insane it was like probably one of the greatest days of my life never mind as a birder it was just like this day that will just stick in my my memory forever I mean one of the, I'll ask you guys about your favorite bird. The one bird I really wanted to see was a diving petrel. And I've never seen a diving petrel. I've got absolutely no reference as to how they look, how they behave. Well, I kind of know how they look, but you know, you don't, you don't really get size until you see them. And we were on the back of the, we were on the back of the boat the one day and we were sitting, there was a couple of us, about three or four of us there. And there's like, the, the best way I can describe it is this. I know other people describe it differently. But my reference was it looked like a, a, a little grebe flank, a little grebe was floating past next to the boat. And I was like, we, 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 we actually got, got the cameras, start taking photos and it started taking off. And first I thought it was, oh, this must be a uh, storm petrel or something. And as we started like looking at it properly, now this isn't a storm petrel and we got a diving petrel. It was like this insanely, insanely, insanely exciting moment. And 
later that day, myself and was that day we were by Marion. We were actually on the back, myself and my, my mate EJ. And we stood there and anyone who was there knows the rain was coming down buckets. And we said, we're not leaving here until we see some king penguins. And we, we kind of like got behind the side of the deck. And yeah, these king penguins just eventually came floating past and was this absolutely, absolutely amazing experience. It's like, you know, you almost can't put words to it to explain how amazing it actually was. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We really hope you are enjoying the episode. If you would like to support us and help grow the show, please, can we ask that you do two things? Firstly, please share the show on your favorite social media channel. Tell us why you enjoy the show and be sure to tag us in the post. This is one of the best ways to help get the word out about the podcast and bring more exposure to the guests that are featured and the conservation issues that are covered. Secondly, to help us cover the costs and to improve the quality of the show, please can you consider buying us a virtual coffee or two? This is a quick, safe and easy way to contribute to the show. You will find a link for this in the notes of the show. You know, for those that were guards, what did a day as a guard look like? Because obviously you guys stood on the deck. I think you did six hours a day. What was it like being a guard behind the scenes? What were the stuff behind the scenes that nobody else knows? It was stressful. <laughs> at first, at least at first, yeah. I mean, when we are, well, personally, I'm used to, I've, you know, just I'm quite new to rock jumper. So even having eight clients at a time is quite stressful because I'm quite used to private guiding where you've got like two to four guests, you know, so having a lot of people around you trying to get them on the sighting. Um, well, firstly, trying to identify the bird and then get them onto the bird. Yeah, it was, it was quite nerve wracking at times, but I must say I've fell into it quite quickly. Um, yeah. And then also having, especially on the prion day when we had all those flocks of prions, Sullivan's prions coming past with the, the odd fairy and the odd broadbill prion within them. Yeah, just having people come to you with these photos and most of them are just blurry and out of focus. And, you know, if I didn't have somebody with experience near me, uh, well, I did often take them to, to other guys like Peter Ryan and be like, what do you think this is? Because if I can't identify it, I take it to somebody with more experience and they just like, too blurry. Sorry, not, not even going to try. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, that, that made me feel a lot better. But yeah, it's, I mean, from a guiding point of view, it was, it was absolutely privilege to, to be part of the team and to, yeah, just to meet the, the guys with a lot more experience and yeah, just to, to get to interact with them. It was, yeah, it was next level. Yeah, I agree. So I found it, it was quite logistically difficult because you have your binoculars and some of you, or some people have their camera as well. And then you've got the, the radio which you've got to listen to over the noise of everybody talking around you. And then you've got to talk on the radio. And then I was sort of clipping it into my shirt and I was constantly thinking that it was probably going to become detached and fall into the ocean. And then I would have been very unpopular. So there was a lot of stuff to manage. And then on the first day when I was guiding, it was so windy that I was shouting myself hoarse. So I struggled to actually shout loud enough to get everybody onto the bird because I was very cognizant of not wanting to just guide for the you know, the five or six people standing right next to me. I wanted to try and make sure that my voice carried to, you know, as far up and down the decks as possible, um, whether or not people wanted to hear me. So um, I was one of the first guides who then decided to to use the loud hailers, which was quite an interesting experience because then I had walkie-talkie and binoculars and at some stage a camera and my phone with WhatsApp messages coming through from the guides and the loud hailer 
and I had to be aware of not blasting people's eardrum accidentally with a loud hailer. So you've got to sort of ha- hold it away from people when you're now shouting out about a bird. And um, I did also accidentally one set off the siren, which was drama, and then everybody thought that you know the ship had to be evacuated. So yeah, it was it was logistically quite challenging. It was sometimes difficult just to you know I mean we're not natural sailors, so reminding yourself which is port and starboard and bow and stern and this is three o'clock and that's nine o'clock. So it certainly had its challenges. It was a very exciting learning curve for me. In addition to just actually looking for the birds, Adam, I, I um about uh, four days before flock, Andrew de Bloch threatened me with uh, being a guide on the on the trip. Um, he said that there were guides falling out rapidly because of positive COVID tests and and not being well. And um, I I think I, I would have been very um, delighted to have been asked to guide, but. While on the trip, I was very grateful I wasn't, and and I take my hats off hat off to to those that did guide because um, the six hours of guiding on a deck, um, particularly on some of the slower days, um, and particularly when you're on the side of the ship where you're facing into the sun and everybody else is on the other side, and when a call gets made for something on starboard and you're standing on port and you've got to hold your station um, when people are talking about eyeglass uh, dolphins on the other side. Um, and, you know, we would have dinner quite late and at top us nine, I'd see all my guiding mates heading off to a guide meeting. And I believe some of them were quite heated with discussions about um, little type shear waters. Um, so I, I, I'm genuinely very grateful to those that did uh, put up their hands and, and did guide because it was, I think it was a lot harder than people actually thought it was. And um, I was very happy just to be a guest on the ship and be able to frustrate uh, guys like Garrett and give him a hard time on deck every night again. Yeah, to reflect on what Mike just said about um, you know being on the wrong wrong side of the ship at the wrong time. I missed most of the whale species that I would have liked to see. I mean, the blue whales, the sperm whales, many of the the you know, citations. I just I was just always in the wrong place at the wrong time. And being a guide, you kind of stuck to your station and you couldn't just leave it and run off to, to go see what you want to see, which, yeah, I did find a bit frustrating at times, but I just remind myself that there's going to be more of these adventures in the future. And yeah, hopefully, hopefully then I'll, I'll get the chances. I'm glad it wasn't just you because I missed a lot of the good citations as well. I mean, when the sperm whale was called, we heard the call. It's on the port side. We just dropped it. We just ran. We just ran as fast as we could. And the moment we got through, I said to everybody, where's the, where's the whale? And everybody points, oh, it's down there, far away. It's now approaching the stern. And then, you know, so it was very difficult to, to twitch cet- um, cetaceans as well and birds, actually. You know, if the bird didn't show itself at your station, it was very difficult to actually get to where it was. Um, so yeah, there were a lot of challenges, but on that point, I wanted to mention, I think most people got onto the striped dolphins on the last day, which, which really spiced up the last day. Um, even though the birding was fairly slow, but I don't know if you guys all saw those, the display that those dolphins put on where they were diving out, you know, 10, five, 10 meters up into the, I mean, that for me, I, I meant to mention it earlier was one of the highlights of the flock, just seeing those animals up, up close. And, and what was so much fun was, watching the reaction or listening to the reaction of the crowd around you with everybody sort of shouting and cheering and just that wonderful positive vibe. So that was also actually one of the highlights of the flock for me. 
Mike touched on those those heated guard those heated guards meetings later later on. Tell us a little bit. Give us a little bit of insight. What were those meetings like? Where they had to go up there and there was and the guards at the meeting you had to separate these birds and decide what they were. What were those meetings like? Julian, I don't know if you want to take this one, but <laughs> <laughs> I know I was just about to say, go. It's up to you. <laughs> yeah, they yeah they got got interesting at times. I I think a lot of the the sort of unconfirmed sightings that some people called were just kind of like kept quiet during guides meetings because like the further the further we got into the the flock to Marion, um, the guides meetings became shorter and shorter and people just stopped debating things. We're just kind of like, okay, you know, it's almost 10 o'clock. We're really keen to for bed. Yeah. And yeah, just kind of people just really kind of just started started ignoring the 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 the, the miscalls and the the suspected species, but there there were some some meetings that got quite heated. I'm not going to go into too too many details or mention any names, but yeah, it was fun. I just kind of sat sat around as an observer and enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, I think it I, I I think it wasn't as there weren't such a lot of controversies as people probably expected. I don't think that people were that, you know everybody was so exhausted by the time ten o'clock night came along. Um, but there were some interesting discussions and it was nice to get some words of wisdom from Pete Ryan, but he also doesn't offer much. You've sort of got to listen carefully and he sort of, you know, drops one or two sentences. But, um, yeah, it was interesting, but I don't think there, there weren't exactly some big blowups that happened behind the scenes. One of the interesting things that's come up after the flock cruise was obviously the Tristan versus the Wandering Albatross. And, you know, almost every day on the platform, somebody's putting a picture and saying, is this a Tristan? And then, they either their dreams are either being like they're either getting like this good news or they're just their dreams are just being shattered. So I'm going to ask you guys, you know, wh- from your experience, how do we separate the two? What do you, how do you guys understand? I know, Mike, you had a really cool insight from your Better Birding webinar. Start with that, then everyone can just tell us how do you separate the two? What from yeah, your look, understanding? I'm, I'm definitely going to put a big disclaimer up front when I say this, uh, but I, I did have um, the benefit of a discussion with. With Pete, um, probably a month before flock, um, just going through some photos I took on the previous flock because there was a, a, a confirmed Tristan on a pelagic trip here in Cape Town. Um, and it, it, it made me go back through my photos and just have a look. I think, um, the search for the armchair, armchair tick is, is real. Um, so Pete went through a couple of the features with me pre flock. And then obviously when, when we saw him on, on deck, um, that particular day, that afternoon, so the, the features I understand, um, is, um, wanderers as they age and their tails whiten from having a, a black terminal band at the bottom of the tail, as that tail whitens, the, the upper wings and particularly the base of the upper wings, um, whiten, um, quite early on. So, um, the base and the, the fore, forewing. So the front of the upper wing, um, and particularly, um, as it goes from the base of the upper wing towards the sort of the wrist of the bird. So when a Tristan ages, um, it ages on the tail a lot earlier than it ages on the upper wings. So what you'll find is you get birds which have got this classic um, piano keyboard, um, piano keys um, tail where it's got black and white feathers. And it's become this misnomer that if you see um, piano keys in the tail, you've got a Tristan. But you have to look at that in conjunction with um, how the upper wings are whitening. So uh, Tristan will show um, the piano keys, but it will show 
um, very dark um, forewings on the upper wing. So if you look at where the wing joins the, the, the torso, the body, um, that, that area is generally very black and it makes almost like a, an angular shape that goes into a bit of a white cape on the back. And you'll see maybe just a few spots of white and then obviously those obvious um, white circles kind of towards the wrist of the bird. So I think a lot of people were looking at um, piano keys and, and then saying, okay, we've got a Tristan here. But if you look at that in conjunction with the whitening and the wings, a lot of birds were getting quite a lot of white in those, um, in those areas and, and makes it very difficult um, to tell. So, I mean, maybe just a bit of background. Pete um, has spent a lot of time on, on Tristan and Goff, where, where Tristan's breed, and has taken thousands of photographs of birds at all ages. And the tricky bit is that um, it's only in that particular plumage at that age, and, and I, I forget what age it is, but it's probably between 20 and 25 years old, that Wanderers and Tristans become different. So very young Wanderers and Tristans, or, well, young Tristans and Wanderers, um, generally are very similar because the tails haven't started to whiten and neither of the upper wings. But then also in older birds, older Tristans and, and older Wanderers, the upper wings have whitened quite a lot in both species, as has the tail, and therefore they look pretty similar at an older age. Whereas it's in that um, sort of um, middle-aged plumage that um, you can you can pick a Tristan. Um, and interestingly, Wanderers are now becoming more difficult to tell because they don't have such unique um, features as, as a Tristan does at that age. Um, there, there is a feature which is vermiculations on, on the upper tail, but that's very technical. Um, so yeah, I think, um, I learned a hell of a lot. Um, and I think there's still a lot of debate about it, but those were the features. The size of the bull is also a feature. Tristans have got smaller bulls and, and overall they are smaller, but when you see them alone, um, or in isolated, um, way, it's very difficult to, to say which one's bigger and which one's smaller. So that helped me a lot. And, um, I, I feel comfortable with the, the one bird we saw in that afternoon. I missed the bird in the morning. Um, but that, that's my insight. And it, it is hopefully not, uh, terribly wrong. You know, I think I'd just probably encourage people listening to the podcast who were there and have photographs of the bird, you know, download those photos, process them accordingly and send them to us. Um, to bird life or, or somehow get in touch with, with one of the guiding crew. We've got a, we've got an active WhatsApp group where we can share photos with the experienced guides. So I think there should still be some room for discussion. Um, people must also be, you know, feel free to share photos and, you know, hopefully we can tidy up some of the IDs afterwards. As we start getting to looking to round up, Yandre, one thing, and I'll say this, your your photography at the moment, you're probably one of South Africa's best bird photographers. And I'm not just saying that flippantly, uh, your photography is absolutely insane. I still remember when you had your point and shoot, your muck and drick camera. And Yandre used to send me like all these pictures and say, how do I edit this? How do I do this? And it's been cool being a part of your journey in a small way, like being able to help you when you had that there. And Honestly, I can say without any shame now, now Yandre helps me. I send Yandre pictures. How do I crop this here? And Yandre, what, just, just from your side, you got some really amazing photos and, um, you can give a quick shout out to your Instagram page. People can give you a follow. But what, what are some tips that, what are some things that you did on the, the cruise that helped you in terms of your photography? So if some of the people want to come see my work, it is the underscore SA underscore birder then you can come see some of my photos but you're basically if i just saw the opportunity to get like a nice photo or a habitat shot of a species because most of the birds were far away but you did get that odd prion or albatross that came in real close and then obviously i tried my best to shoot away with my camera but you you really need to 
know how to follow the bird through the viewfinder in order to keep it sharp or just to keep it in frame. And also to know your your settings, your shutter speed, your white balance and your ISO is just all such an important role that you should play in these weathers that keep on changing. So yeah, this was a tough photography outing, but after all, I did get a few nice shots and the one shot I was like dreaming about was to just get a nice proper photo of a Suti albatross. And when I was standing on the bow, um, close to Marion or actually, yeah, at Marion, all of these albatrosses and birds were so curious about the ship. They came in so close and low and eye level and you can just take amazing photos of all of these, um, birds. So that was a really awesome photographic experience and yeah. So guys, we obviously saw some really amazing birds. We spoke about the Wandering, we spoke about the Tristan, but what was your highlight from the Flock to Marion cruise? So let's start with you, um, Garrett. Yeah, this is a, it's a tough one because I love all of the birds so much. I got nine world lifers, which for me is just mind blowing. And one of the birds that I actually missed on the previous flock was the light mantled albatross. I was one of the, the, the elite, um, few people on the flock who unfortunately somehow missed seeing light mantled albatross. So I think that that has to be my bird of the trip. Uh, we saw it from the bow on the first morning, um, down close to Marion and I spotted it coming in from a distance and shouted out as loud as I could. And yeah, I think that's definitely the Tristan might be a close second, but I have to go to light mantled albatross. The light mantled albatross that we saw from the stern on that Marion day was, was a huge photographic highlight for me. I got such a nice pick of it. Um, but I think the bird I wanted to see more than any other was uh, blue petrel. And um, about a day and a half before getting to Marion, we were chatting and um, being told that, you know, it might not be possible, um, particularly not going as far south as, as we had hoped to go. Um, so it, it stayed as a, a large outstanding doubt. Um, and on the first morning, at, well, on the morning at Marion, um, one flew past and everyone on, on the deck around me seemed to get onto it. And I, I, I sort of got a tail end and I got features of the bird, but it was very unsatisfactory. And then again on the bow, I saw one flying away. Um, and then right at the end of the day, just before they closed the bow, when the weather was starting to deteriorate, um, one was shouted by my good mate, Mike Mason, standing next to me. And I just saw it quickly. It was right in front of the bow and then got my camera onto it and got a really nice pick of its upper sides as it turned, um, as it flew away from the, the front of the ship. So that, that was, um, definitely a moment where I stood back and I said, uh, I think I've seen just about all I kind of expected to have seen on the trip. And so for me, blue petrol was my highlight bird. Yeah, so I mean it's a tough one. I got as Garrett said, you know, so many different lifers, um, world lifers, but I must say the wandering type albatrosses, both wandering and Tristan's I mean, just seeing those incredible beasts out in their natural habitat was yeah, it was yeah, next to nothing. Eh? Um, I think my favorite bird of the cruise was definitely a king penguin because it has like a special story behind it. Um I was standing on the bow and every now and then someone would shout, King Penguin, King Penguin. And then I would try and look for them and I couldn't see them. And then, yeah, me and my friend Jean decided that, okay, enough of this. We're going to go to our balcony and, you know, just bird from there and have a chat. So, yeah, we went to, um, 
my room and we sat on the balcony and then all of a sudden I saw these two heads pop out of the water in front of the, um, well, on the side of the ship. And I was like, there's king penguins. And then that was really like an awesome experience to see those birds out in the wild. And they were so beautiful and magnificent. Um, so yeah, it was really special to see these birds in their natural habitat. That's really awesome. So last question, guys. So as we get, we, we've had a fantastic flock to Marion, uh, flock to Marion cruise this year. Where would you like the next flock cruise to go to? So yeah, Garrett, over to you. I think I'd like another one in the Mozambique Channel because I think a lot of the younger birders like us sort of, you know, excluding Mike, obviously, um, the, the young birders in the panel, we all missed the famous Envy Madagascar trip where they went up into the Mozambique Channel. So, yeah, the chance to see some boobies and tropic birds and frigate birds and uh, things like that, I think that would definitely be my first choice. First choice. Yeah, definitely not the Mozambique Channel. A um, lot of reasons for that. So one, uh, don't want anyone catching up on my list. Um, but yeah, the tropics, the tropics are not great for birding. So we had days on that particular trip where we, we saw one day more passerines than we saw seabirds. So, um, I would definitely not vote for that. Sorry, Garrett. Um, I, and I'm, I'm really being nasty because you mentioned my age. Yeah. So I, I know this is very unrealistic, but, um, they did a trip, uh, many years ago, um, by Marion to the pack house. And so it was a trip that went in midwinter, um, where the pack house comes a lot further north. So it's a little bit more reacher, reachable. Um, so that for me would be incredible. I know it means taking sort of uh, two and a half weeks of leave rather than one week. Um, but I, I would love to go back to Marion um, and and also to the pack house and have the chance at an emperor penguin. I think that would be my option. Yeah. So since Mike mentioned going down to the pack house, I'm yeah, <laughs> on the fence now. But like as much as I'd love to go out to the, the, the Amsterdam islands, I know that's a bit far for, for a week flock cruise. That would take a bit longer. Um, yeah, I'd actually love to go out to the, the Tristan da Kuna group. I think that would be quite an experience. And Yandra, any ideas from your side? So I would have to say the, um, Mozambique channel because it has a lot of epic birds um like boobies and frigate birds and tropic birds and all of those warmer water species which are generally rare to see anywhere in southern africa so i would definitely say the mozambican channel just to get those birds and to experience them in person so yeah we are proud to be working in association with Wild Books Online Store to help get all the best birding and nature books into your hands at a great price. If you would like to support the Birding Life Project and the resources that we are putting out, please click on the link either in the comment section of this podcast or our social media posts. Your support helps us to improve and hopefully make a bigger impact. Don't forget to follow The Birding Life on Twitter Instagram, and Facebook. We appreciate everyone that takes the time to interact with these accounts. Be sure to check out Bird Lesser and download the app on either iOS or Android and keep a lifeless while playing your part in social conservation, as well as Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes. So until next time, be blessed and happy birding.